0: Acts chapter 19, and let's read uh, verses 1 through 20. This is what God says. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then... Were you baptized? And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of, oh, I'm sorry, into what were you baptized? They said, um, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for this account, God, of Paul entering this stronghold of the occult of false worship and how we can learn from him here, how we see the power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit, your power on display, and how the forces of darkness, no matter how firmly entrenched they they may seem to be and how powerful they may seem to be, wilt and fade before you, our almighty God. Truly you have no equal. The gospel is unrivaled. So God, encourage us with these thoughts today. Help us to learn this morning from Paul's engagement of the culture and of the world of Ephesus. Change us, God. Do what you need to do in our lives. We confess this morning, God, we need you. It's not my words, God. We hold this treasure of your word in clay pots. So pray, God, that you take your word, through the power of your spirit, and change us, encourage us, teach us. As always, we pray this, the glory of Jesus and the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'll tell you right up front, um, we're not going to get through this whole sermon today. I, I practiced it, and it was fine. Preached at first service, and God just kind of led a different way, so I marked where we ended first service, and uh, it's the beauty of preaching the series myself. I can stop the sermon whenever I want, right? And, uh, but God, uh, no, we just spent a little bit more time at the beginning, so that's what we're going to do here, and uh, we'll continue next week. The whole chapter is in Ephesus, so we'll just kind of blend it together, so we'll just see where the Spirit leads us this morning in this service. Um, one of the things I'm really thankful for when we were walking through our adoption process, um, I had lunch, many of you heard the story, um, when God was working in my heart, I was just trying to figure out, like, what, what are we doing? Like, can we do this? Like, this is crazy, you know. And I uh, met with a, a good friend of mine, Scott, Scott Florida. He was the youth pastor at the time up at Alpine Baptist. And Scotty and I had lunch together up on Alpine at Qdoba. I can even, I'll never forget where that conversation was, even where we were sitting when we had it. And Scott uh, told me a lot of things. And uh, half the time, Scott was in tears. And one of the things I appreciated, Scott sat, sat across from me, and he's like, Craig, he goes, it's not a Hallmark movie, man. <laughs> He's like, it's not gonna be easy. It's hard. He's like so many times, uh, we're sitting there as a family, Scotty's family had adopted a, a couple, um couple kids, and he said sometimes we just sit in the recliner and I'll be holding one of my other kids and we're just we just cry. Just cry. And he says, so it's hard. And you didn't know and and it was so good to hear all that. And and, and then I'm sitting there going, like, so why would we do this, you know? And but he said, I'll never forget. He said, Craig, it is worth it. <laughs> it's worth it. He goes, it's hard, but it's worth it. Every day I get to see the gospel lived out, even in my own family. I get to see, uh, reminded reminded, I'm an adopted kid. And I'm even worse than anyone I could ever adopt. And God still, I mean, he, just, he just talked about how much it was worth. But he's like, you need to know that it's not going to be easy. And it's going to be hard so appreciated that right? and I think as I look at Paul's engagement in Ephesus and, right, and we've been here, this isn't a new thing as we've gone through Acts but, you know, we see it here in Ephesus, this is, this is not easy and we can learn lessons here as Paul engaged this culture, it's hard and there's opposition and there's spiritual forces of darkness that are against us but at the end of the day we see it here that, that it's worth it and that the power of God will prevail and it's good And we just have to stand in and keep swinging. And that's what Paul does here. So let's talk about Ephesus here for a minute. This is Paul's third missionary journey. The beginning of this journey is just summarized real briefly in a few verses at the end of 18 and the beginning of 19. And then it focuses in here um, on the city of, of Ephesus. And uh, this was a significant city. I feel like we say this almost every city we're in, but this, this was one of the, the, the most important ones that Paul was in. It really was. Uh, it was the leading city of the most prosperous region of the Roman Empire. Uh, numerous inscriptions archaeologists have found around Asia Minor that refer to Ephesus as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was so significant, in fact, that Roman roads throughout Asia Minor all numbered their milestone markers to and from Ephesus right? It was the center point, kind of like the state of Ohio, right? Dan, you're, you're, you're mocking me. It's, uh, just kidding, not like Ohio. It's more important. But. It's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. About a quarter of a million people live there. Uh, very prosperous. It was the great commercial center of the area. Uh, Ephesus controlled the financial affairs of, of all of Western Asia Minor, mo- probably most of Asia Minor. Highly significant in that way. Here's the other thing you need to know. Ephesus was spiritually dark. Known not just for the worship of Artemis, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, in the next couple weeks, but uh, it was also known for the occult, witchcraft, the dark arts and magic that were practiced there. If you read the book of Ephesians, it wasn't just written to the church of Ephesus. Ephesians was written to all the churches of Asia Minor. just bears the name of Ephesians. Um, but, you, but you can see even there though that, that, that some of the imagery that Paul uses he writes with an understanding of the darkness that was there you know we wrestle not against flesh and blood and the arm of the Lord like Paul uh, understands this when he writes that book like this is the context of, of Ephesus it is spiritually dark it is a hard place and we know too that Paul had stopped there briefly on his first missionary journey um, and they had asked him to stay but uh, he declined at the time he needed to get back to Jerusalem and to Antioch, but he promised, this is in chapter 18, verses 19 through 21, he promised to return if God wills. So we arrive here at Acts chapter 19, and we see that God did in fact will it, and Paul is now here ministering. So there's a little bit of background on uh, the city of Ephesus. So what are some lessons we can take away? I entitled this sermon, The Battle for Ephesus, um, because I believe we see here this clash of, of, of the gospel with, with darkness in a very tangible way in Ephesus. So the first lesson we learn as Paul engages the culture and the world of Ephesus is that the battle required the gospel to be fully proclaimed and correctly understood. Fully proclaimed and correctly understood. Wednesday, uh, I was coming back from lunch, pulled into the church parking lot, And uh, as often happens, there's someone sitting here, you know, waiting or doing something. But now there's a car parked back here against the the back lot or the back of the lot. And uh, they were changing, trying to change their car tire. And it was really apparent just in the the time I drove from here, you know, about to the entryway here that they were not having a lot of success. So, you know, I'm having that inner, like, I really need to get downstairs and get going on youth group stuff for tonight. But, you know, I pull over and. Help them with, with the tire. While we're talking, um, you, you know, you can't just waste opportunities like that either. So I, I brought up the fact, you know, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. And then the guy proceeded to apologize for all the expletives that he had said. In the first five minutes we were together, and I, he's like, "Oh, pastor, I'm so sorry." I'm like, "That's fine. I don't, you know, whatever." You know, it's. Um, and uh, and then the topic of Christ came up. And he said, "Oh, thanks for doing this," and and he just gave an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And he said, "Yes." You know, I, I, we, we try to give because Christ has given us so much more. And talked about that a little bit. And, and he makes this statement. He said, you know, he goes, yeah, oh, yeah, Jesus has changed my life, too. He said, oh, he just, yeah, Jesus changed me. He said, yeah. and he listened. I, I went to this church and this church and all these different denominations. And he said, you know, what I've come away with it, from it is just that, you know, I've taken some, a little bit of everything from all these churches and I've just, you know, kind of done my own thing. You know, and that's that's kind of what I've done with Jesus, you know. Well, so then you're standing there, and you're like, okay, it's raining, that slush, whatever, that was coming down from the sky, and I got to get it downstairs. But you're like, you cannot let that statement go. And so just real briefly, just kind of said, listen, I said, you can't do that with Jesus. I said, what you need to do is you need to understand Jesus based on what God says in the word of God. You need to find a church that says you know that preaches the book and Jesus is defined by this not by all these churches and we are not allowed to just pick and choose and make Jesus what we want him to be and tried in that brief amount of time to at least clarify the gospel and say no there is a way not just picking and choosing right it's kind of what Paul encounters here as he enters Ephesus it wasn't quite that but it was this incomplete knowledge of of Jesus right And so he finds these these disciples in Ephesus, and he asks them two diagnostic questions. Now, I think the reason why he asks these questions, I believe, right, Luke doesn't record to us all the details, every single word of every single conversation. And I think probably what has happened here is that as as Paul has engaged him, I think there may be some doubts in his mind. Enough has been said where I think he's questioning some things. So he asks them these these two questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they responded, no. Like, what's that? (laughs) We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul's like, okay. Interesting, right? Implied in this question, implied here in this question, is that the true believer will know the Holy Spirit's presence in their life. That's implied in this question. Paul is assuming that. The Holy Spirit is a gift an empowering presence that guides and leads and instructs and seals. I wish we had time today. We don't have time to go and preach a whole weeks on a theology of the Holy Spirit. But right, we see a few places in scripture, the gift and blessing that the Holy Spirit is to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Paul writes, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. Spirit's a gift. We know when the Spirit is indwelling us. It bears witness to us that we are the children of God. Ephesians 1 13 and 14. In him, also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit enters the believer, indwells the believer, and is a seal of our salvation. Right, you guys from youth group Wednesday night. You remember this came up Wednesday night in the youth group. Like, you know, once we're saved, we're always saved, and we talked about that. Yes, for this reason. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a seal, right? So Paul, Paul understood this. If you're truly a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and you know it. Paul knows that without the Spirit's presence, one is not truly a Christian. Okay? So this was a crucial question. He then asked him another question. Into what then were you baptized? An answer into, into John's baptism. Another interesting question too, right? Assumed in this question, Paul is like, if you are a believer, you've been baptized in Christian baptism. That's a whole other sermon too, right? Like the concept of someone who claims to be a Christian and has never been baptized, that would have been completely foreign to Paul. They'd have been like, what? Like dude, You get baptized when you're saved. That's just what you do, right? So he asks them about their baptism. They answer that. John's baptism. All of a sudden, Paul's putting the pieces together. He's beginning to understand. that The picture is becoming clear to him. They had put their faith in the coming one that John had proclaimed. But that was the extent of their knowledge. They don't know about Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. And they certainly don't know about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. You know what I thought about? It's almost like this guy right here. This is uh, Rip Van Winkle. You know, read this in literature when you're a kid? Um, I forgot. I didn't even remember. Someone, for 20 years, he slept? Yeah? Is that right? Amen? Okay. Whatever. Uh, 20, right? He falls asleep 20 years, and then he wakes up, and like everything, he, like the last things he remembers is all this stuff from 20 years ago, but the, the, everything's changed since then. Right? That, that's kind of what happens here. These people had heard about this coming one, and then it's almost like they, they were in this like time warp, they they missed everything in between, and now they need to be caught up. Like whoa, there's a lot that's changed since you heard that. And Paul instructs them. He follows uh, this question with a clear articulation of the difference between John's baptism and New Testament Christian baptism into Jesus. Right? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe on the one who is coming, Jesus. Paul basically explains to them that their faith is, is incomplete. They must put their faith in the one who came. They must be baptized in the name of Jesus. They must identify with Jesus. So the question that always comes up in this passage, and you see it reflected in all the commentaries, were, were, these, were these people truly Christians? And I would suggest to you, probably not. I don't think that Luke um, regards these disciples as, as being Christians. Why the disciple terminology? You're like, well, he uses the term disciple. I think there would be a couple reasons. I, I think Luke is using terminology. It could be he's using the terminology based on that, that's what they became. These were disciples. It's like if you're reading like the history of how a band came together, right? Um, and you say all these two guys met in college, and they started, they started the band, and then they were in Nashville. And, you know, if you're reading a story, basically, it's going to say something like, and then, they, then we met the other band members in Nashville. Well, they weren't band members when they met them. But they were band members, right? It could be something like that. It could be that he's just using the terminology because they did have spiritual sensitivities. They were trying to follow God. But I don't believe that they were truly Christians, truly saved, born again at this point. And the reason why I say that is because the, uh, the overarching theme of Scripture is that the Spirit is, is required for salvation, Right? I mean, John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So while they can be described as sincere seekers, they probably could not yet be described as truly being born again. The weight of Scripture seems to point that direction. The fact of the matter is, and Paul understood this, is that a genuine believer, a genuine believer, has faith combined with the presence of the Spirit of God in his life who manifests that presence in in their lives in clear and distinct ways. That's an authentic Christian. So the good news about this story is that they, they hear this, they need to respond to this. Right? They need to respond to what the gospel is, the, the, the message of Jesus. And they do. They hear it, and they're like, whoa, yeah, we need to catch up here. And it says that they're baptized. They're immersed into the name of Jesus. Then they receive the Spirit when Paul lays his hands on them, which results in speaking in tongues and prophesying. Sounds familiar in Acts? Another little Pentecost event here. right? By the way, this is the last time in the book of Acts we see the presence of tongues mentioned. Right? This validating manifestation of the Spirit. I suggest to you that at this moment, they know that they have the Spirit. They know now. right? We have to address to this. What is, what's going on here with this whole Spirit transference through the laying on of hands? We know throughout the rest of the New Testament that that's not normal. Right? It doesn't happen. Uh, Trey, Trey becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. praying. and he receives Jesus as a Savior. And then, then he goes, like, Oh, man, I've got to run to church. And Hope Craig or Dan Austin, one of the elders is there, Matt. And he comes in and is like, Oh, guys, I, I got saved, but can you, can you give me the Spirit? Yeah, yeah. come here, Trey. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. We know that. The way to the rest of the New Testament, we, we become Christians, Spirit comes in and dwells us. What's going on here? Well, we've already seen this at least once in the book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 8, uh, when Peter and John took the gospel to the Samaritans. They came to Christ, and Peter and John laid their hands on him and, and received the Spirit. We've seen in other places where the Spirit comes in kind of a spectacular fashion, in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and the Gentiles. They didn't lay their hands on him there, but while they were praying and proclaiming the word, the Spirit comes upon them in a very clear and obvious way and manifests himself very much the same way he does so why is this happening well again remember that Acts is a transitory book it's very much a transition between between the covenants and the gospel is spreading out uh, across the world And, and what we see in the book of Acts is that these events coincide generally with significant shifts in gospel expansion and therefore usually function in some kind of a validating type of role in the book of Acts there's really no pattern to the Spirit's coming. Sometimes He comes before baptism, sometimes He comes after baptism, right? He's, he's the wind. We don't tell with the wind the Spirit where to go. He goes where He wants. And during this period, He manifested Himself differently and coming upon people. And I believe it's this. It's, it's just for validation purposes. And, and it's done differently in different places to, 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 to validate in that particular context. Right? Why did it happen this way in Ephesus and not in Philippi or Corinth? I don't totally know. But I think it was something specific to the city of Ephesus. Um, One commentator, David Peterson, in the Pillar Commentary series, writes this. This coming of the Spirit in this way was the appropriately dramatic inauguration of Paul's ministry in this city. Where God's Spirit would be remarkably at work, opposing the power of magic and false religion, and winning many people to Christ through the region. At another level, it was specifically related to the identity and need of these particular men. So for reasons in some ways only known to God, the Spirit needed to be manifest in Ephesus in this way. I personally think it had something to do with the way the occult was manifested in in, in Ephesus and the way spiritual powers of darkness had been manifested in Ephesus. And I think that God in his omniscience, right, and his sovereignty and wisdom, this is how the Spirit is going to be manifested there to serve as validation for Paul's ministry and to show the power of this movement over and against the power that's already there in Ephesus, in the occult? That's a simple answer, but I think that's very much part of it. It's contextualized here. So they get the gospel right, this is the foundation of the whole thing. The gospel must be clearly presented, clearly understood. Paul understands that. If the gospel's not set correctly, if the true gospel is not the foundation, nothing else happens. There's no other victories. The church just becomes a social club, a place where you gather together for nice luncheons and sports and street hockey in the gym, right? If God's power is to be unleashed, if we're truly going to make any type of difference, we must have a solid foundation of the gospel, boldly and accurately proclaiming it and not settling for like, well, I think this person's saver, that sounds good enough. No, it's specific And we must make sure we get that right. Again, this isn't new. We've talked about this already in Acts. But this becomes the pattern so often in churches over the years, over the decades, where it becomes so watered down that you don't stand for anything anymore. The gospel becomes nebulous. Man, may that never happen here. May we never accept that here, right? The battle required persistent effort for over two years. You see this in verses 8-10. through 10. Paul enters the synagogue, begins speaking. For three months, he speaks boldly in the synagogue, reasoning and persuading. It's an investment of time on the part of Paul, right? Paul is always, we've seen this, purposeful and intentional. And we need to remember that. There must be purposeful intentionality in discipleship and evangelism. We want quick and easy results. We have to invest for the long term. Jake and I have talked a lot about this. We, we wanted to provide opportunities here at Forest Hills for people to come and, and learn the basics, right? We'd love to have a hub or a class for people to come and get the basics instead of coming. People have never set foot in a church and they're sitting here and listening and we're like speaking another language and we throw them into a hub group where they're talking about predestination and, you know, whatever. And people are like, whoa. And, and, and No, we need to ground them in the gospel. We need to be intentional. We need to take time to teach and invest and lay a firm foundation with these people. And it may take a long time. Right? And we, as good Americans, usually aren't patient enough to wait it out. We want results now. Right? We don't want to commit the time that may take pouring into someone to bring about results. So we often do a great job of lip service to spreading the gospel, but we're not willing to pour ourselves out and make the sacrifices required to truly evangelize and make disciples. Three months, Paul teaches there. It's just the beginning, right? Well, this is a little bit encouraging, kind of a weird and twisted way. After three months, we see that some are stubborn, They continue in unbelief. That word stubborn means that they're hardened. It's the same expression that's used to describe Pharaoh in Exodus. When Moses let my people go and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's the same terminology. You catch what's going on here, though? They're, They're hardened. Unbelief. They begin mocking Christianity. After three months of sitting under the Apostle Paul, right, That's like kind of encouraging to me (laughs) in a way. I mean, right? I mean, we're like, well, if only Paul was our new lead teaching pastor. I'd gladly accede that, right? But right? I mean, here's Paul. This is the nature of ministry sometimes. Three months of listening to Paul, and they're like, nope, not buying it. Hard in their hearts, stubborn. Right? that's encouraging to me sometimes we're going to invest sometimes we're going to pour our lives out into people and there's just not going to be a response if Paul wasn't automatic we certainly won't be either we just to be faithful right? this speaking evil of the way the way is terminology referring to the, this movement Christians have been speaking evil we're reminded of it here again right when we speak truth, people will speak evil of us. It's all, often only their, their, their only recourse, sometimes. I'm convinced that most times people know, deep down inside, that, that God's word is true. People, I, I believe people are hardwired that way, in the image of God. And sometimes, I think their only response is to turn and speak evil, try to find ways to speak evil about Christianity. And I, I think sometimes we try too hard to be accepted by the culture. Sometimes even as churches, we try too hard to be accepted by the culture, and Jesus warned us about this. Jesus said, "Remember, back in the Gospels, hey, be careful. If all people are speaking well about you, you're probably doing something wrong. Be careful. Don't compromise that. If everyone loves us, no one's speaking evil of us. It might mean that we're compromising our message. Right? What does Paul do? He doesn't quit." Paul withdraws from the synagogue with the disciples and begins ministry in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus. Uh, this hall of Tyrannus, not 100% sure what it is, probably some kind of a lecture hall, possibly a school building, an education building. But here's the deal Paul didn't quit, he recalibrated. Paul didn't quit, he recalibrated. These are the halftime adjustments that a football coach makes after they've seen in the first half what worked and what didn't work. And they go in at halftime, and they make adjustments, right? This is us on on wilderness trips, right? We take students up on wilderness trips. And sometimes you you put groups of students together, and you're like, oh, my word. It seems like they have a rudder on the back of their canoe that's stuck to the left. And and no matter what they do, that canoe just keeps, you know, and you're trying to teach. And so... And sometimes what we have to do, especially when we come in, like this past trip, for instance, we come up to the last lake, which oftentimes is a bear. Um, and this particular day it was. There's a lot of wind on this lake and on Canoe Lake there. And, and we get there, and, and Jimmy and I are, are talking, and, and we're like, you know what? We've got to break up a couple of these canoe groups because they are never going to get home. You know? <laughs> and, and we didn't give up. We didn't leave them in the wilderness. Tempting sometimes. But uh, no, uh, no, we, we recalibrated and, and we're like, let's put this in this, this combinations. This is what's going to get us safely across. Right? We recalibrated. Didn't quit on him. Recalibrated. So Paul does here. Is it back? Right. Okay. Fine. I'm gonna leave that. I'm gonna go proclaim the gospel over, over here. He doesn't quit. He keeps going. And what happens next? Incredible. Says so he gets to the hall of Tarsus and begins proclaiming the gospel. And he spoke consistently there for two years. Two years. And here's what I love about those two years. In that time, because of that investment, all the residents of Asia Minor, Luke writes, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Note, that was Paul's responsibility. Right? That is our responsibility to proclaim so that people hear. Paul spoke publicly and clearly. It doesn't say that everyone in Asia Minor came to know the Lord, became Christians. It doesn't say that. It says they all heard. And that's a good reminder of our role, is it not? We are responsible to proclaim. And sometimes I think, like, we're kind of like, well, what if I proclaim? What if they don't get saved? What if they don't become a Christian? Not your problem. Not your job. You just faithfully proclaim. That's God's side of it. Speak truth. Take the pressure off yourself. I think sometimes it paralyzes us. We put too much pressure on ourselves. Like, man, I can't, I can't speak like so-and-so. I can't, I don't think I can convert this problem. Person, you, you can't. You can't. Take the pressure off. Speak truth accurately and clearly. And let the gospel do its thing. Right? That's what Paul does here. Here's the thing this two year stint, I, I'm going to suggest to you this two year stint in Ephesus. I, I believe this was the pinnacle of Paul's ministry success here in Ephesus, of all places. It's highly productive for Paul. The gospel, as we said, reaches the entire province. Now again, this isn't Paul. Paul was basically based there in Ephesus. He may have gone out on on short things, but Ephesus was his base of operations. But he had spread the gospel, and he had made disciples, and, and, and he faithfully proclaimed and built into people, and, and that's how it went out. Remember, you look throughout his, his writings, we, he has so many ministry partners, Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, and Timothy and Epaphras and Philemon, and Aristarchus and Gaius and Tychicus and Trophimus and Stephanus and Fortenaeus and Achaicus, and on and on, right? Paul built into these people, and the gospel exploded, and they go out, and they spread the gospel. And we know from 1 Corinthians, you look 16 verse 7 in uh, Revelation 1 through 3, that churches were were established all over Asia Minor. Just two years Paul poured in in Ephesus. This place characterized by the worship of Artemis and the occult. It becomes crucial to the whole province here in the gospel. How awesome is that? We'll close in this point pick up next week. The battle demonstrated the reality of spiritual conflict. That's the amazing thing in all of this. Again, when you think of where Paul is, the success that the gospel had here in the face of intense spiritual conflict in Ephesus. Note in verse 11. Luke is very careful with his language here. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God was doing extraordinary miracles. It wasn't Paul. Paul was the vessel. God is behind this. He uses terminology, extraordinary miracles. I think if I remember right, this may be the only time in the New Testament where this Greek word is used. If it's not, it's in only a few others. It's not a widely used word, this word for extraordinary. This is interesting, because Luke... Luke was used to seeing signs and wonders. Luke had seen incredible things. And so for Luke to say extraordinary, like this was not normal even for Luke, what's being unleashed here in Ephesus. Like the literal wording of this is not the common. Paul was doing not the, God was doing not the common. God was doing not the ordinary one. Kind of the literal translation there. God was doing not the ordinary. Handkerchiefs and aprons. What is this? The nuance of handkerchief, it's, it's sweat rags. It's like you've been to an NBA game and the guys play and then afterwards you know, they're walking in a tunnel, a guy will pull his headband off some and throw it up in the stands. It's like a feeding frenzy. Everyone's like, oh! You know, if we went to a game like if we went to a Celtics game and Jason Tatum threw his headband up and that, you know, Zach caught it, he'd be like, oh! And they're like, oh! It's got his sweat on it! You know? i bring it home to mom. She'll be like, let's wash it. No! Got Jason Tatum sweat on it, you know? Oh, no, I just gross. Um, but right, like, but it's so cool because he was wearing it, and that, that's that's kind of what's going on here. You know, Paul, he was still working, doing his tent making stuff. And he's probably sweating throwing stuff. And I don't, I don't. You know what I picture? I picture people being like or just sneaking around the tent, being like, you no. Know? And Paul finishes and hangs up his apron, and someone reaches around and grabs it, and that lunch, and he goes up, and he's like, oh, lost another one. Um, but they were taking his stuff. And they were bringing it home. They're bringing the sweat rag home, right? Like Dave's sick. Hey, here, here's Paul's sweaty handkerchief. Dave, inhale deeply. Wipe it all over yourself, and oh, and he's fixed. Like that's what was happening. And right, it sounds extraordinary. Luke is like, this, this is weird. Looks <laughs> like this did not happen, but it's happening here in Ephesus, and it, and it wasn't uncommon. And here's the thing, in a place like Ephesus with the occult and the dark arts, it was not uncommon for, for sorcerers and healers to sell objects that had been charged with power to take home and, and, and work th- their magic. I think God's playing their game here. Oh, okay. You can do that too. Watch this. Okay. I mean, we, we saw this back in Exodus. Remember this with Moses and Pharaohs, and and they're copying each other. And God's like, oh, that's nice. You, you can change yours into snakes too. You're right. Okay. Right. Oh, you can do that with. Okay. All right. Now watch this. And this is where this goes. See this next. This is where this goes. I think God is contextualizing ministry. I think He's speaking to these people on their language, showing them that. Your power is nothing. Oh, you guys take stuff home? Any? Watch it. We do that, too. Uh, sadly, this type of thing, that, right? Uh, this type of thing's been abused today, too. People on TV, evangelists, whatever, miracle workers, like, hey, send us 20 bucks, and we'll send you this rag that was dipped in the Sea of Galilee that we blessed, and it'll heal you. This has been so exploited and abused, okay? That points to a man. This pointed to the gospel. I remember asking Dan Cook one time, our missionary in Brazil, I said, Dan, what's the greatest threat here? What's the greatest challenge? He said, You know, our greatest challenge in Brazil is not spiritism. He said, It's not, it's not immorality. He said, Our greatest challenge is the health and wealth gospel. And these these people who promise these things, and, and he said, then people buy into it and they and it fails them, and then they're they're turned off to the gospel. Right? So this has been abused. That's not what Paul is is doing here. Right? Note that these miracles don't come from Paul's initiative. Paul's not described here as approving these things or encouraging them. It's just happening. Paul's not promoting himself like Simon the Magician did earlier in the book of Acts. He's not promoting himself like the sons of Sceva do here in the next few verses. Paul promoted Jesus in the gospel. Whatever happened after that wasn't up to him. That was just God doing his thing. God briefly seems to be accommodating the way these people thought. By manifesting his healing power in a way specific to that context. Again, Ephesus is so known. The evil is so present there. I've, I've talked about this before when, when John and I were stuck in Sao Paulo on our last Brazil trip. And, and walking around the occult, so prevalent. I mean, you go to the mall and there's like eight stores selling paraphernalia and demonic stuff and you know, spell books. It, it's just like it was so heavy there. It's into that context that God is doing this miraculous work. Real power is on display. And remember this is always, the point is never the miracles. The point is always what the miracles point to, the gospel, right? And we see that again. Miracles don't change lives, right? It's the gospel that changes lives. We see that diseases left and spirits came out in verse 12. Diseases left and spirits came out. People were released and freed why? Because the gospel brings healing. The gospel is what brings life change. Magic brings oohs and ahs. The gospel brings healing and freedom. The world and Babylon, it may impress you, but it will not heal you. And God is speaking loudly to that. That's not power. That will change nothing. So, anything you're looking to this morning to change your life and, and to, the, whatever magic you're looking for in the things of this world, that will not heal you. The gospel must be pre- clearly presented and clearly understood and appropriated. The Spirit must indwell you. That's where salvation is found, that is where freedom is found. Ask our worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in a closing song. I was just talking to a brother this week a new brother in Christ. And he was talking about this, and he he said, I found freedom. There's things in my life that that were chaining me, and and substances that were chaining me. And when I released those, and when I gave my life to Christ, and he said, I am free. I'm free now. That's what God is showing here. That's what Paul is demonstrating here. This is where real power comes from. There's two people here in this passage. They're those who harden their hearts became stubborn, and refused to accept the gospel. And then there were the ones that heard and submitted themselves. Some of you are sitting in here today, and you're hardening your hearts, and you're being stubborn, and you need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and understand this is where freedom comes. This is where healing comes. I'm going to leave you with that. Trust that. Embrace the greater power that comes from Christ and find freedom in him.